0: So for those of you I don't know, my name is Ryan, and I have the honor of serving as the college pastor here at Northway, and I'm really excited to, to be with you this morning. I hope that you had a, a Merry Christmas and got to celebrate uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus uh, this yesterday and then this season. Um, so my nephew Hudson, he's seven years old, and he is an incredible athlete. Like he is a stud athlete. I tell people all the time that he is the best athlete in our family. Since he was like two years old, he's been able to throw and catch, shoot basketball, throw the football. He, he is a stud athlete. And on top of being an incredible athlete, he absolutely loves watching sports. He just loves sports in general. Instead of cartoons, he records games. And he will sit there and watch entire baseball games on end and then ask for another one afterwards instead of cartoons. He, I, ever since, before he could even talk, I would sit with him and he would say, hey, pull up the ESPN app and I'd pull it up and we'd scroll through and he would tell me all these different team names, whether it be NFL or NCAA or baseball, whatever it was, he could tell you all the names. He even has all these different chips with every baseball team on them and I can remember sitting there with him and he proceeded to divide them up between league and division. And I can tell you that I didn't help him at all because I don't know them. That's how obsessed and passionate with sports that he is. He loves them. And so inevitably, when we go over to their house to hang out and spend time, we end up playing sports, a lot of sports. And when we play, I I don't necessarily just let him win. I think there's value in losing. I think that sometimes it builds character. So I don't just let him win. But, but with that, I obviously don't play as hard as I could possibly play. I'm 6'1". I'm grown. I'm way bigger, faster, and stronger than him. And so I don't just, I don't just play as hard as I could possibly play. I, I will make mistakes on purpose from time to time. I'll, I'll let him take the ball from me. I'll miss some shots. And there's been multiple times when I've made some mistake, whether it be on purpose or on accident, where then I would hear him, even as like a four-year-old, say, Uncle Wyan, that was terrible. (laughs) I was like, oh, really? That was terrible, was it? It's absolutely crazy, right? Because what he clearly doesn't understand that I could score at will if I wanted to that the only reason why he even has any points is because I've allowed him to score those points. And so it's absurd for him to think as a four-year-old or seven-year-old or however old that he could beat an adult in anything. His pride is clearly misplaced here. Now, in a few years, it's probably not gonna be misplaced. I'm not gonna be able to hang with him. But as for right now, it's misplaced. So, so why do I tell you that? Because pride, while it's funny in stories like this and it it's, can be funny in kids... For us, it's destructive. And so this morning, what I want to highlight and want us to look at is the absurdity and the detriment of pride, and I want us to look at the necessity and the value of humility. And so that's where we're going this morning. The passage that Pastor Eric read was in Philippians chapter 2, and he read verses 5 through 11 for us. And so um, before we kind of discuss these verses, I want to give us some context and some background. Philippians was written, and it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written while he was imprisoned in Rome. And he wrote it to a church at Philippi. And this is a church that he had helped plant, and he had started, and he had a great love for this church, a great passion for this church. And so as as a main part of this letter, he writes it to thank them to thank them for how they've encouraged him, um, to thank them for the gift that they sent him, to thank them for their partnership in the gospel. And then also, he, he wrote it because he had heard that there had been some division among them, that there was these two ladies that, that weren't getting along, and so he wrote them uh, so that they would be unified. And, and those are the verses leading into the passage that, that Eric read for us. Is he's encouraging them to, to come together as one, to be of one accord and, and one mind, to set aside selfish ambition and set, set aside conceit, to, to not be prideful, because what Paul understands is pride is an agent of division, that, that pride is an enemy of unity. And, and we get this, right? Like we, we, we understand that. There's no one who's like, you know who I just love? It's the guy who's just full of himself. I, I love spending time with him. I love hearing him just talk about himself nonstop. It is just the best. You know what, I really love that he has so many opinions and they're all right. He knows everything and I just love being around him. I love spending time with him. I love taking orders from him. I love that he's willing to step on anyone else to get what he wants. I just, I love being around that person. No, no one's like that, right? Pride is an enemy of unity. And so Paul here, he encourages them to to be one, to be unified. But he says, I want you to do this through having a spirit of humility. I want you to do this through wrapping yourself in humility. And he encourages them to, to have the spirit. But what he understands is this spirit of humility is not natural for us that the heart of mankind is bent towards self. It's bent towards selfishness. And again, we, we get this. Just this past week, we had a family get-together, and uh, I've got these three little cousins, these three little girl cousins that, they're all under the age of three, and they're the cutest, sweetest, most precious things you'll ever see. Like, so sweet. And these three little girls came to this family get-together, and one of them had a l- giant stuffed Minnie Mouse. And so you parents can probably do the math. Three sweet, very innocent little girls and only one giant Minnie Mouse. What proceeded to happen were these three otherwise very sweet and kind little girls. Among them became tears and snatching and scowls. When they didn't get it, they would just get so angry because they couldn't have that many and they didn't want to share it with anyone. And I guarantee you no one taught them how to do that. It's almost instinctive. Because that's our hearts. Our hearts are bent towards selfishness. Our hearts are built bent towards pride, and and the problem is not only is pride the enemy of unity, pride is an enemy of God. There's a, a pa- verse that's quoted all throughout Scripture, and in Proverbs, and in James, and in First Peter, and other places as well, and the the first part of the verse says God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. He is in opposition to pride. And if pride is an enemy of God, and our hearts are bent towards pride, then what that means is our nature is in opposition to God, that we, by nature, are enemies of God. And so Paul knows this, and so he wrote these verses that that Pastor Eric read a little bit earlier, and these verses, uh, verses five through 11, are known as the Christ hymn, or the hymn of Christ. And and the reason why it's called that is because this was a hymn or a poem that would be recited or sung within the early church. And we don't really know if Paul wrote this himself or if he just quoted it, but what we know is this is something that the early church clung to and recited. Um, Tim Mackey at the Bible Project says that it is the centerpiece of the book of Philippians, that it, the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, all kind of is centered around these verses. They are pivotal to the letter. But it's not just the book of Philippians that many will say that these are some of the most profound verses in Scripture, that they show us the nature of Jesus and his purpose and his deity and his humble nature. And so Paul, or not Paul, yeah, Paul gives us this letter, these verses, to give us fuel for humility, to show us how to be humble, how we can wrap ourselves in humility. So we're going to read through these, or we're going to kind of work our way through them. I'm not going to read them because Eric read them for us, but I'm going to kind of work our way through this passage. And so here in the beginning, we see that he calls us to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It says, if you want humility, you have to have the same mindset of Jesus. You have to put on his, his demeanor, his outlook. So in the first little part, it points to Jesus and his deity, that he, Jesus, was God. And, and what we see all throughout Scripture is that God is triune in nature, that he is Trinity, that, that he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three distinct, but he's also one. And if it hurts your head, welcome to the club. It is hard to understand, but this has been the standard doctrine of the church for many, many years. This is what we see throughout Scripture. And here, uh, Paul points to the deity of Jesus. And there's many more verses throughout Scripture um, that point to this other than just these verses. Um, I've synthesized a few of them for us in John uh, chapter 1, John chapter 17, in Colossians, and Hebrews, and again, there's many more, but I've taken these verses and I've kind of summarized them in a statement, uh, that, that some elements from these verses. Jesus is God and was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Jesus, for Jesus, and are sustained by Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. There in the very beginning was Jesus with God. There it went when God was creating all things, Jesus was the very agent of creation. And not only was he the agent of creation, that creation was for him. And not only is creation for him, but all of creation, all living things are held together and sustained through His power. All of our cells, our bodies, the way the world rotates, it's all held and sustained through His power and His majesty. He's the radiance of God's glory. That is the sun. Sends forth its rays, that Jesus is sent forth. His glory is that of God the Father. That is the majesty, that is the power, that is the authority of Jesus. He is God. And by nature, He is far above and far greater than our finite minds can even wrap our brains around or comprehend. That is the nature of Christ as deity. And in fact, this glory of God is so intense that that we as man cannot even stand in his presence. Because here's the reality. When we are faced with true majesty, power, glory, holiness, perfection, the natural response is humility. And we we get this on, on some level, right? Like I don't watch highlights of Michael Jordan and think, you know, I'm pretty good at basketball. I could take him. Like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, I don't watch golf and, and see the PGA tour and say, you know what? He's only three under. <laughs> I might average over 100, but I could take that. Like, I don't think good of myself when I look at their, their amazingness of them. I don't see an incredible work of art and then draw a picture and say, yeah, they're close. Like, there's a clear disparity there. There's a clear difference. I don't look at majesty, glory, true beauty, and think much of myself. It, it humbles me. And that's the concept here, that the glory of God is so intense that we cannot even stand in his presence. When you read throughout Scripture, there's a pattern that we see. Um, We see it with the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. We see it later on in the New Testament with Peter, James, and John. We, We see it then with Paul. And we see it several other places where these men would come, and they would find themselves in the presence of the glory of God, and they would hit the ground in humility, that their response to being exposed to the the glory of God was to fall face down in humility. And and in fact, what it teaches us in Scripture in Exodus um, chapter 33, verse 20, that if man were to see the face of God, if man were actually to see the fullness of the glory of God, it would render us dead, that it would kill us. Why? Because of the nature of sin. Because we are sinners. You see, in the beginning when God created all things, it was good. And God and mankind walked with one another in the garden, and the relationship was good. But mankind rejected the rule of God and chose self-rule. Mankind chose to cling for power and glory that was not rightfully his. We rejected the creator, God, and in doing so, we cut ourselves off from the author of life. We, we separated ourselves from God with this sin, with this rebellion, and because of this sin, because of our rebellion, there is now a chasm between mankind and God, and there's nothing that we in our own power can do about it. See, once there was relationship, with God but now the presence of God is deadly for mankind but what is so beautiful and what this hymn points to is is the richness of God's great love and mercy for us and that he sent Jesus for us that while we in pride grasp at glory that is not rightfully ours Jesus it says, does not count equality as something to be grasped or clung to. That he, he let go of what was rightfully his and he humbled himself on our behalf. That he humbled himself and he became man. That he wrapped himself in humility. That he wrapped himself in flesh. Now, it's not that he lost his deity because he can't do that. He is fully God and he is fully man. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And again if it hurts your head a little bit join the club but that's what scripture teaches that that God took on flesh and became man and dwelt with man. The ESV study Bible says it this way it says while he had every right to stay comfortably where he was in a position of power his love drove him into a position of weakness for the sake of mankind. He limited himself he became man. That's what we celebrated yesterday. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season: is God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. That in all of His radiance and glory, and all of His power and authority, He wrapped Himself in flesh. He wrapped Himself in humility, and He who birthed creation was born to a woman. He was born to a woman, and she wrapped Him in cloth and she laid Him into a stone manger. And now he who who has absolute and supreme authority over all things is reliant on his mother to take care of him, to to feed him, to clothe him, to provide for him. It says that as he grew up, he who has all this authority submitted himself to the authority of his parents. And Jesus, being a man, being born in the flesh, meant that when he got hurt, he felt it that he felt pain, that when he stubbed his toe, it hurt him. It, it meant that, that when he was exposed to disease, he got sick. It meant that, that when he was laboring alongside his father in the trade of being a craftsman and, and carpentry, that means he got splinters and it hurt him. It meant that when, when Jesus was a man, he experienced loss just like we do. In fact, many scholars will will believe that um, Joseph actually might have died, his father might have died in his time on earth, and he would have lost his father. And what we know, what scripture tells us, that he lost a friend in Lazarus. And so Jesus, as a man, he experienced this loss, and that when he wept and mourned, real tears fell down his cheek. And as an adult, when he began his ministry, he who was once surrounded by the heavenly host singing his praises surrounded himself with a motley crew of followers. And in his ministry and throughout his ministry, he demonstrated his true deity, demonstrated who he truly was. He he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He even brought dead people to be made alive. He spoke with authority that no one else has ever spoken with. But he was opposed. He was opposed by the religious leaders. And in the last week of his life, this Jesus who has numbered the stars in the sky and numbered the grains of sand on earth and the dust on earth, washed the dirty and dusty feet of his disciples. And then Jesus, again, who has the power and authority over the winds and the waves and the seas, the power and authority over even angel armies, submitted himself, humbled himself, and allowed himself to be arrested by those who opposed him. And though he was perfect and innocent and holy and blameless in every way, he was put through a mockery of a trial, and he was sentenced to die because he equated himself with God. They then blindfolded him, and they struck him repeatedly, saying, mocking him, saying, prophesy. Who was it that hit you? Who was it that struck you? And the I- irony of it all is not only did he know who it was who struck him, he knew the very number of hairs that were on their head. But he allowed them to do this. And, and he, they took him, and they, they made him carry this wooden cross up to a hill called Calvary, a wooden cross that was created and crafted from a tree that he created up a hill in which he forged and there on that hill they drove spikes into his hands and into his feet and again as a man he felt every single hit of that hammer he felt the the flesh being ripped apart by those spikes And what that meant is that every unjust claim, every blow that he received, every whip from the scourging he received, every mocking word, all of it was done by human beings that were being sustained through his power, through his allowance. And then they hung him on the cross on display for all to see. And crucifixion was excruciatingly painful. And what we found is the author of life would have felt the very life from his body draining away as it became more and more difficult for him to breathe. But not only was it excruciatingly painful, but it was humiliating that this was Rome's way of saying, hey, this is what happens when you rebel against Rome. This is what happens when you rebel. And so they would strip them of their clothes. They would put them out as a spectacle for all to see. And so here we see Jesus the one who had angels singing glory to him, singing his glorious praises to him, is now hanging on a cross in humiliation and being mocked. And they would mock him saying, "Hey, if you are God, just, just come on down." And the thing is, he could have done that. He'd have just uttered the words and angels would have swooped down, taken him away and brought destruction to all who were hurting him. But in humility he doesn't. He stayed. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, He who knew no sin took on the sins of the world. He who was perfect and blameless in every way allowed himself to feel the weight and the guilt of sin. That he who knew no sin bore our sins. He who was once in perfect community with God the Father had God the Father turn his back in darkness. And finally, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there we found the author of life murdered on a tree. And his body once again taken and wrapped and put into a stone grave. That is the humility of Christ. That is the humility of him. And so we have to ask, why Why would he subject himself to that? Why would he leave the comfort and the glories of heaven and step down into this broken creation? Why would he allow them to beat him, to mock him? Why would he allow all these things to happen if he had the authority and the power to, to make it all stop? It's because of his great love for us. Because he wanted us to be reconciled to the Father once again. That he wanted us to have a relationship with our Father once again. And so our hope lies into what happens next. That Jesus, though he was dead in the tomb, God the Father breathed life into him on the third day. And he came to life, and they rolled the stone away, came to life in victory over sin, victory over death. He appeared to disciples and many others, and then it says he ascended into heaven where he is exalted and lifted up into a place of honor and glory and authority, and he sits now at the right hand of God. And our hope is in his exaltation. And and the phrase that says, every knee should bow and every, every tongue confess, that's a quote of Isaiah chapter 45. And in Isaiah 45, it's actually Yahweh, God, God the Father, speaking these words. And so here, it's attributing Jesus, the divine and personal nature of God, so that is if if there's any question to who he is, we would know who he was. And our hope is that through his humility and through his sacrifice, we too can be exalted and lifted up as he was. How? How can we who are God's enemies have hope? How can we who are in opposition to God have hope? The second part of the verse that I read to you earlier where it said God opposes the proud— it finishes by saying, but he gives grace to the humble. Another way it's Jesus says it himself in Matthew 23:12 is whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, the prideful person exalts himself and says, I don't need God. The prideful person is, is blind to sin and blind to the severity of sin. The prideful person is is blind to his condition before God being separated and dead in sin. The prideful person, the prideful heart, conceals or outright denies sin in an effort of self-preservation, but this effort's done in vain because it ultimately leads to destruction. But the humble heart looks to the glory and the majesty and the perfection and the holiness of God and then turns and sees the severity of his sin. And the response of the humble heart is that of Isaiah, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, I am in desperate need of a savior. I've sinned against you, God. I am not worthy of you. But the promise of God is that when we in humility turn to Jesus, And cast our eyes to him. Believing in who he is and what he did on the cross. Believing that God raised him from the dead. Believing and trusting it was done for us. Then he delights in lavishing upon us grace after grace after grace. That our sins are crucified on the cross of Christ. And his righteousness and obedience are placed on us. That through him we have a hope that Jesus will return this time not as a baby, but this time in full glory to receive his bride, the church, the Christians, and to bring them into eternity with him, and that there will be a day where they'll be lifted up and exalted to dwell in the presence of God in perfect relationship with him for all eternity. That is the hope of the Christian, that in humility we cast our eyes to Jesus, and as he was lifted up, we are lifted up. And all those examples I mentioned earlier with with Peter and James, John and and Isaiah and Ezekiel, the prophets and Paul, um, what we find is they, they come into the presence of God and they fall to their face in humility. But in every single one of those examples, we find a representative of God lifting them up and then commissioning them out. And that's what happens with us. That as we We fall in humility at the feet of God. Jesus lifts us up and commissions us out to go and to proclaim his glory, to live and glorify him in all that we do, to proclaim the name above all names. He exalts us and lifts us up and gives us a hope. And so for the Christian, humility is an ultimate posture, and it's a daily posture. It's an ultimate posture because when we turn to Jesus for the first time when we humble ourselves before him and trust in him and we're given uh, names as sons and daughters of the king, that, that position cannot be changed. That there's nothing that can rip us from his hands. We are ultimately saved and nothing can absolutely strip us from his hands. So it's an ultimate posture, but it's also a daily posture. It's a, it's a daily posture because even though we have been saved by God, we still have the tendency to, to fall back in, in towards our bend of pride, towards our bend of self. We have the tendency to, to be selfish and prideful and rebel against God still. And so Jesus encourages us. He says, hey, take up your cross daily. Die to yourself daily and follow me. And 1 and Peter, and Peter says, hey, I want you to clothe yourself in humility. I want you to clothe yourself in humility. That Just like you get dressed every single day and put on clothes, I want you to wear humility. Make a daily choice of that. Because we have the tendency to fall back towards pride. And so Christian, where, where's the pride in your heart? Where do you have the tendency to bend towards self? Where in your life, in what area of your life do you have a, a sense of entitlement, like, like something's owed to you? Where in your life do you have a, a sense in which that, that you feel lacking of praise of others, that you, you feel the need that someone needs to thank you for what you've done? Where in your life do you fail to sacrificially love and serve others? You see, here's the thing, those who have had their sins wiped away and washed by the blood of Jesus, there's no place for pride in our hearts. There's no place for boasting except for in Christ himself and his work on the cross. Who are we to think much of ourselves? Who are we to think that we are above others? When we look to Jesus and how he wrapped himself with humility to the point of death on a criminal's cross, then who am I to say I am better than someone else? We must clothe ourselves in humility, daily. And how do we do this? Well, we regularly cast our eyes to Jesus. We daily return to Christ. Um, that's why this was a hymn. That's why the early church clung to these verses. They, they recited it, they sung it, they came back to these verses because they knew it was a necessity. We, if we want to daily walk in humility, we must cast our eyes to Jesus every single day and admire who he is and what he did on our behalf and and how he humbled himself for us, that he died for us, that his blood covers our sins. We daily come back to that. And in light of his humility, we are then humbled. And our love for God grows. And as our love for God grows, our love for his people grows. And it will lead us to sacrificially serve others. We will consider others before ourselves. We will confess sin regularly, believing that what it says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, do you find yourself regularly humbled before God and for, before others? Because here's the reality, an absence of active humility is an indicator of present pride. We must actively fall to him in humility because pride in light of glory, majesty, and power, and the holiness of God, it's an absurdity. And it's destructive. And so we must humble ourselves before God, trust in Jesus, knowing and believing that when we do, he lavishes upon us grace after grace after grace. I just want to close um, because it's by speaking to um, those who are not followers of Jesus. Um, there are inevitably some in this room who have never in humility turned to God. And for, for some, it's, it's an active thing. You, you know this. You, you understand that. For others, you have said some prayer sometime and you would maybe even check some box like if someone said, are you a Christian? I'm like, yeah, I do the religious thing. I do the Christian thing. Or you've walked down some aisle. But the truth is, you've never humbled yourself before God. You've never been broken over your sin. And here's the thing. If you have never humbled yourself before God, then your position before him is his enemy. You are in opposition To God. But you need to understand that there is hope for you. That if you will, in humility, turn and cast your eyes to Jesus, believing in who He is, believing in what He did on the cross, believing that God raised Him from the dead, and believing and trusting that it was done for you, then your sins will be crucified on the cross of Christ. That you will have your sins washed away his blood, that your sins will be forgiven, and that you'll be lifted up, and that there will be a day where you will spend eternity in relationship with your God who loves you. You're commissioned in his service to proclaim the name that is above all names and glorify him. And my hope and my prayer is that you would do that.